Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 205 of The Sausage Factory, a podcast that features interviews of developers that ask them about their backgrounds, inspirations, and the games they make. In this episode, I chat to Theodore Wern, Henrik England, and Matthias Johansson of Sky Goblin about their soon-to-be-released title, Hellfront Honeymoon. But before I do that, I'd like to tell you about the other podcasts that reside under the Cane and Rinse banner. There is, of course, Cane and Rinse itself, the highly venerated podcast that places video games under an electron microscope and described by hosts that have actually finished the game they're discussing. Then we have Sound of Play, the podcast that places the music of games front and centre and not as merely a means to provide atmosphere. All three shows can be found at canandrince.com and also on your podcast catcher application of choice. Also, don't forget you can gain access to exclusive content by becoming a patron by offering up just one US dollar a month. That's about 77 pence. And you can listen to extended versions of Cane and Rinse, platform specials that are three months in advance, as well as much more content besides. Now, on to the show. Matthias, Hendrik and Theo, please. Who are you and what do you do? We are, well, we are Sky Goblin. We've been making computer games for uh, how long? Very long. Very long. We've been running this business for at least like 11 years, maybe? 13. 13 years. Holy shit. Yeah. It's been a while. So we've been through a lot. We've been through a lot of ups and downs. We've been making all sorts of weird games along the way. Uh, Our background is uh, varied. Um, Me personally, I've, I've always been into art, computer art, so I come from that perspective. Uh, I don't have any higher education, um, contrary to my colleagues. Let them talk about their background. Uh, Yeah, well, uh, I'm Matthias and I'm the programmer, uh, and I have a computer science degree, 
but started making games way before I went to college. Uh, made my own games when I was a teenager and uh, met up with Tio uh, in high school and we started making games for fun. Uh, and when we graduated, we sort of started bringing together a bigger group of people uh, making games with the aim of being commercial or uh, able to live off it. Um, and that has taken a while. <laughs> yes. Um, it's been a long journey. So yeah, you, you wear different hats, I take it then. Obviously, uh, some of you are, you said you divided up some tasks, but ultimately it's all, all one amorphous blob. Uh, yeah, you could say that. We, um, it's taken, I mean, it's taken these 13 years to figure out what our roles really are and to, uh, you know, to ultimately to respect each other's decisions. That takes forever. When you form a, a group of people, it takes a long time. So finally, I think we do know uh, what everyone focuses on. Uh, and finally, I think everyone gets to do sort of the part of the job that they enjoy doing, which ultimately is what it's all about. Um, so yeah, I, in, in the beginning we were like uh, 10 people or something, so it's, we have shrunken down. Yeah. Uh, so now we have the roles more established. Yeah, exactly. It was a, it, we were a huge, really a huge group. It was more like a hobby, hobby thing. Uh, and it took a long time for people to realize that maybe this isn't what I should be doing or like the the projects we were doing it was difficult to find a good project that everyone was interested in and people dropped off and once there was a little bit of money that started coming in we had to make some really tough decisions and some more people dropped off and then as time went by uh, we kept on shrinking as a group and then finally it's just the three of us though we do a lot of we outsource uh, a lot of the production uh, should be said, so we don't do everything in house. Well, we we outsource the um, sound and music part, um, but we do all the the programming pretty much in house and all the graphics. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The actual development. Yeah, and all the game design, obviously, which is really the I would say the most fun part. And we do that together as a group. We make the decisions together. Uh, basically sitting in the same room drinking coffee and throwing ideas around until something sticks. Okay. So, um, I think you've partially answered to this, a lot of you, because you've all delved into your histories, which is, which is lovely, but I want to... This is one of the most fun questions I like to ask guests, is how did you make your start uh, making video games? I know you've already hinted it, but some more specifics, I think. So, please, each of you, described in, in brief... Two or sentences, where did you make your start into this strange world of flashy lighty video games? Well, um, I think I would say the start was finding uh, the first map editor. Uh, the first games that had map editors, and I was playing around for hours and hours and hours with the map editors for uh, Warcraft and for um, uh, Half-Life uh, and a bunch of others. And... Uh, then when I was 11 or 12, I was introduced to QBasic by my friend and his brother, who knew a little bit of coding. Uh, though we didn't know English very well, so it was very hard to figure out what things were doing. And we didn't have a manual or anything, so we were sitting just punching things into the computer, seeing what would compile at random. And then every other week, 
my friend's brother's friend, who was kind of a hacker, we thought so, came over and he taught us a new command. And then we used that for another two weeks and started building our own little QBasic games. Uh, and then uh, going through school and meeting other people and actually learning programming, things got a little bit more refined, but pretty much just trying things at random and also working a lot in uh, a program called Click and Play. Yeah, that, good stuff. That later evolved to the Games Factory and then it became Multimedia Fusion. I don't know, but is that what it's called now? I don't know, but it's still around. Yeah, it's still around. It's more professional now and you can actually make commercial games with it. Uh, but when we started playing out with it, it was pretty basic. Uh, uh, game making software where you could uh, design your own objects and set up some uh, very easy uh, scripted behaviors for them. I mean, used to play around with that for years, uh, making our own little Zelda clones and other kind of top-down shooters and other easy, easy arcade-style games. Right. So, like proprietary languages, that's what you you develop from, not rather from the core stuff, which you'd probably use now. Uh, C++ and stuff like that, but it's you actually developed from a much higher level language, which is really interesting. Also, I can't imagine how hard it would I mean, programming is bad enough knowing English, so <laughs> <laughs> which we all now know is a very, very weird language. It is. <laughs> There's lots of, lots of inconsistencies, like, that makes no, just let it happen. <laughs> it's, I know. <laughs> so, um, okay, um, so that's, that's really, I mean, also, uh, you're right, Half-Life. That brought about careers, many careers, that game. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Half-Life 2 was, was 20 years old yes, uh, yesterday, I think it was. Someone someone announced that there's a 20-year anniversary for Half-Life 2. So oh, we're waiting, yeah. yeah, we're waiting 20 years for three. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, thanks, Valve. Um, okay. Well, that's, um, unless you want to expand a little bit more on that, we can move on to the next question. Um, which is a um, difficult one to answer. Um, this one is really about your creative juices and what gets your them flowing. What do you believe, as a studio, is your biggest influences as creators of video games? Um, I think when we were younger, we played a lot of games, um, and I think that's a lot of inspiration in many games we are building right now. Um, before this we were building adventure games and then we played a lot of adventure games when we were younger right. like Monkey Island and things like that uh, and this game is um, the Hellfront Honeymoon is some sort of mixture of uh, Starcraft, Star Wars uh, Star, not Star Wars but uh, like the, the RTS uh, genre combined with like the simplenessness of uh, regular uh, platformers Something yeah for, for me it, it does, does reek of you drawing inspiration and things basically your influences are other games other creators other, yeah uh, very much so it's very much like Hendrik says it's it's a lot from like what we remember when we were kids playing games and what was magic about playing sitting down with a Nintendo 8-bit game and just mashing those buttons to pieces it's like that's something we really wanted to capture in Hellfront Honeymoon. The intense doing something with a friend. You know, you come home after school with your friend and you just sit down and you grind a game 
and you just beat the hell out of that game. Uh, rapid arcade action fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think what, what, uh, a game we talked a lot about when we were talking about what we want to make uh, intense co-op action was we talked a lot about the old classic uh, Chip and Dale uh, Rescue Rangers for Nintendo 8-Bit, which was a really fun, uh, like, semi-co-op, not really co-op, but that at the same time it was kind of game. And we were, we were so fondly talking about this game uh, me and my colleagues, and we realized that that's, we'd like to do something like that, like back to the era of simple controls, you're just goofing around together in a couch, having a good time with a game. Um, but yeah, then, and, and there is not so many uh, good uh, co-op ga- no, uh, ga- couch games when you can play together in the couch. Yeah, we, we, uh, we do that a lot like these days socially. We play with our friends uh, locally uh, at their houses, at our houses. We play with our girlfriends. We play local, local games. And this is something that we, we, keep, you know, we keep hunting Steam to find the fun local co-op and local versus games, but they're not there. I mean, there are some big games. There are, like, you have Towerfall and Overcooked. And, and like, Needhog. Yeah, and Needhog. And there's a couple really good local games. But there aren't nearly as many as you'd think there would be. And not even on, like, on PlayStation. Uh, you, you've got Gang Beasts and a couple other games. But, yeah, we found that there was really, a, like, a niche here we wanted to fill. Not only for everyone else, but for our own sake we want to we want to play this game that's why hellfront honeymoon exists we want to play that game yeah it's uh there's uh lovers in a curious space time that's a really good yeah, one that's um, another uh bro force that's if you haven't played that it's just yeah absolutely we hilarious it. yeah it's good it's been most of the time putting the controller down laughing and then go <laughs> yeah. okay so let's carry on yeah <laughs> yeah it's, it's wonderfully chaotic that game it is and pretty yeah, difficult. I, I love that absolutely Brutally difficult, but uh, people don't care. Like it doesn't matter. I'm good. It's too funny. Yeah, it's, it's so for- forgiving that game. It doesn't yeah. matter if you die. You just jump right back into the action. It's just so much bro. But you're right. There's you think there's like there's loads of games that actually know there's a bit of a dearth. There's a bit of a you know, and uh, there's it's getting better and better. And, it is um, absolutely. And yours, you know, Hellfront Honeymoon is going to help fill that as well because. It, it, it. We'll talk about it in more detail later, but there's some aspect of it that makes me because I'm very old. Um, so I remember like Robotron and stuff, and like, oh yeah, this feels a little bit like that, you know. There's, but there's also like you listed a whole rack of games as well there, and I think the best way I described then this latest output of of, of, of Sky Goblin is um, is really about a homage and a, an embracing of all the best bits of uh, arcade stroke RTS games and yeah. squeezing them together. Yes. And there's a little bit of MOBA in there as well. Just a, just a There is. There's a little bit. Yeah, there is, which yeah. is funny because neither of us have ever played a MOBA ever. No. <laughs> we just realized that that's like, ooh, hey, this is there's this big thing called MOBA games yeah. that we've never, <laughs> ever tried. <laughs> so maybe that's popular and we should kind of vampire into that somehow. Yeah, I, I, I did a... Uh, well, I was doing a feature, working on a feature like... Um, uh, called Dota Have a Clue, which is basically <laughs> yeah. how to get into MOBAs or what are the best sort of ones. But every time I try to write it, the one appear, then vanish because they come and go. Unless they're called League of Legends and Dota, they just come and go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, there are a million of them. It's, it's like, no, don't. Are you Dota? Yeah, go away. 
I think it's one of the reasons that, like, I think our generation, it sounds, it's sad saying this, but we're, we're 30 plus now. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, we're old when it comes to this. We, we're used to the Nintendo 8-bit controller. We liked that there were two buttons on that. There's Just B two. and A. Yeah. And that was magic for us. And that's something we want, we want to bring into Hellfront Honeymoon is the simplicity of the interactions. We don't want too much to think about. We want intense action. Yeah not too much complexity no and for yeah. me i'm even older because i'm 40 plus so oh my God. It, it was one button we only had one yeah <laughs> yeah so we can relate here yeah we can relate like what is this thing just deal with it i can't so yeah just only one button uh but uh we, we they've managed to get through amazing things so excellent response to that question i've had all sorts of response everything from my dog to um my you know science fiction author to like you say just other people's work and that's yeah. a great thing to respond with i think uh, what hendrik mentioned here briefly which is i think pretty important is the influence uh, from playing rts's as well like playing the first starcraft game for an instance yeah. uh, obviously does this doesn't play like starcraft not even remotely but it does have some similarities uh, and especially visually we took a lot of inspiration from classic starcraft it feels uh, like the most intense part of starcraft not the yeah. bit where you're building stuff up that's fine yeah but it's not that bit it's that five minutes no less than that two minutes of just intense lunacy that you complete run, you spent yeah. past half an hour <laughs> building yeah. towards. it's really crazy when you have a two real when you have skilled players playing together and you get a match for maybe 10, 15 minutes, oh, and they're like sweating because there's so much action, and they yeah, need to be awesome. like fighting, fighting. It's beautiful. When you have a four-player match and everyone knows what they're doing, it gets really intense. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a magical thing about games, I've found. But uh, we'll, we'll delve into that later. We keep rushing ahead, because I've got another question for you all, and this one's really hard to answer because you probably don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Uh, but what developer do you most ad- admire in the industry and why? Oh well, uh, I will. I will say Blizzard is definitely on the top list because some of our favorite games in different genres uh, are there. Uh, even though uh, we're mostly played maybe in the nineties. Yeah, we're still, old Blizzard fans. They have done new genres since we stopped playing there. I haven't. I. I have played Hearthstone a bit, but I haven't played uh, Overwatch or uh, Heroes of the Storm or... Uh, or World of Warcraft. Or World of Warcraft. Neither of us have ever been into, like, an MMO, really. So, yeah. yeah. Still, they're still kind of on the top. <laughs> it's because of their legacy, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, listeners are now bracing themselves for me to go into my long diatribe... Not diatribe, my long speech about how I played WoW for years. But I'm not going to do it, everyone. See? <laughs> you can't take a drink. See? Good job. I'm Good job. denying you a drink. We so, dodged, dodged the bullet. <laughs> You've dodged the bullet. So thank you for that, all three of you. See, almost did it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. Stop it. Put the drink down. No, you. I'm looking at you. So Blizzard, good answer. Although, you know, recently they did a thing. People got angry. Because, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah but, LucasArts, we must say, also. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The the classic uh, LucasArts uh, oh, okay. era of... That's like our previous production was this huge point-and-click adventure game thing called The Journey Down, which was a project that took us like seven or eight years or something to complete. Uh, And that was, well, heavily inspired by the golden age of point-and-click adventure games. It's wonderful to see the renaissance, the reappearance, isn't it? People 
understanding that puzzles need not be impossible to solve. Yeah. You can still tell a story. Yeah. And that's in, you know, you can reward people but not spoon feed them, etc. It's that fine balance. And now finally, I say finally, people have actually understood that. They did go into the doldrums. They went very far south because there was a certain game that was very bad. <laughs> and it was a very bad clue. And it was just like people said, that's it. It's dumped the shark. Never again. Never yeah. again. And then it took them many, many years for it to recover from Gabriel Knight 3 and the cat hair thing. But, uh, mm. yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. Any, anyone else? LucasArts, Blizzard, anyone, any... Anyone else you sort of nod, 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 uh, and go, yeah, they're good. They should carry on doing their thing. Well, I think Sid Meier, to me, is an uh, inspiration. Uh, it hasn't made, been up, made it into our game design yet. Maybe it will, but large uh, 4X um, civilization-type games is uh, one that should also get recognition to be a big inspiration and a big source of a lot of fun, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm the founder of uh, the creator of Towerfall, Matt. Yeah, Matt. Uh, Matt. Yeah. That's that's a slick design. Yeah, it's, it's just fast enough, but not too fast for it to be manageable. It can go a little bit crazy, but not too crazy. Otherwise, yeah. it's not fun anymore. When you go, well, I can't see what's going on, so I'm supposed to win. You know, it's uh, and the respawn time is just right, not not too long, but yeah. still punishable enough not to die. <laughs> yeah, what's fun also with the towerfall is that you can have this, uh, you can have a really talented player that can meet uh, someone who's pretty new at the game, and it's still going to be kind of interesting because this this new person is going to have a new way of approaching the game, and it's going to be chaotic, and then they might win. Yeah, that that it makes it really interesting. It does. Good design, very good design. Yeah. Hey. So, last question of the first half. See, you made it. Well done. Good job. <laughs> Good job. Um, and this is a question I'm legally obliged to ask because it's a podcast about video games. What are you playing right now? Me, personally, I am playing... Oh, three of you. Yeah, okay. I'll jump right in. Yeah. I am playing Doom on PlayStation 4, okay. which I am enjoying violently. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It is. Uh, it is. It's. Uh, I realize that it's a game that's. It's cheating a lot. It's like helping me so much, but I think that's why I enjoy it because it's just uh, constant fun. It's not. You know, it's it's helping me all the time. Whenever I'm in trouble, I get help, and that's fine. And I just enjoy that. It's like a railroad of fun. Hmm. Uh, I'm also playing a really well-made um, point-and-click adventure game called Siok. Right. Uh, um, which is, uh, it was like, a, it was on a Kickstarter a couple of years ago. Okay. It's a really beautifully well animated game. Right, I'll, I'll check that out. What's the spelling of that? It? It's really difficult to spell. It's T S I Q, and then I don't know, it's anybody's guess what comes after the Q. Uh, I don't know. T S I O Q. T S I Q should be enough. Yeah, something like that. That's good. That's great. It's a really like a tight. Tight design, right. and it's not a difficult game. I like I like easy games. It's a, it's an easy adventure game with tight design, and it's not very big in scope. It's it's a pretty it's like it's probably something you finish in a, in an evening if you had more time in the evenings than I do. Yeah, that's what I'm playing. Enough about me. How about Henrik? 
Yeah, I'm mainly playing games with friends uh, in the sofa. Right. So I usually play Towerfall or um, Needhog or some other simple games that you play for maybe half an hour and then you switch game. Right. And uh, have you played Needhog two yet? Have you played? Is Needhog two out now? I think it is. I can't remember. Yeah, I haven't played it. Yeah. Everybody's telling me that the first one is better. So. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like they did. Like, if I just, I'm just going to yeah. barge right in here. <laughs> Nidhogg 2, without having played it, yeah. it looks like they did what anyone might want to do, which is just complicate things a lot and add a lot of stuff. Yeah. Which, when you make a game, generally, really a very bad idea. It is. Like, it is. If you have a really good core gameplay loop, like they did in the first Nidhogg, then that's like, then you're done right there. That's all you need. Yeah. Then you can make a sequel and you can just kind of decorated slightly differently but when you start adding a bunch of other features it's like you're going to mess with the core loop yeah but now i'm talking out of my ass because i haven't played the second game <laughs> that's just but like when we've been working on Hellfront honeymoon a philosophy has constantly been to remove features not to add features yeah and we have added a lot of stuff and then whoop up that it just it didn't work with the core loop we throw it out yeah yeah. So I think that's, well, that was a different discussion entirely. <laughs> I'll take over then and answer okay. the question for me. Yes. That's, and uh, and I'm solely playing Age of Wonders 3. <laughs> the only game he ever plays, by the way. <laughs> Since forever, I've been playing that series. It's like a fantasy conquest questing uh, turn-based strategy game by Triumph Studios in uh, the Netherlands, I think. And it's uh, kind of a building off of Heroes of Might and Magic and uh, the Master of Magic uh, game series uh, or games. So, uh, uh, yeah, I'm kind of stuck with that. <laughs> and I think I'm just going to keep on playing that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I envy you. I wish I could do that. Yeah. Um, just, like, dive into one game and go, you know what, this is it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not yeah. going to play anything else. Sadly, because I say sadly, it shouldn't be like this, because I'm a, you know, a commentator, a journalist, if you will, can't. I, can't, I yeah. can't do that. I can't. So I have to delve into all of the things. And uh, and it's not just video games either. I play role-playing games. I play board games as well. So it's uh, it's all of, the, all of the things. So for me to answer that question would take an entire hour or two to say, yeah, I'm playing all those. Are you insane? No, it's what I do. <laughs> it's, it's a consumer of games. Sorry, I have to commentate on them and consume them. So, um, well, that's it for the first half. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. We are now going to delve deep into the whole front honeymoon. Oh, yeah. talk about a game until we know what it's about or how it works so please gentlemen whoever wants to try to do this yes. what is Hellfront Honeymoon? Um, 
I'll give it a shot to explain it. Uh, very simply, it is a top-down um, twin-stick action strategy shooter. It's very fast-paced, uh, where you construct uh, barracks or turrets on predefined spots, what we call the honeypots. They're glowing honey tiles. Um, and uh, simply you can decide uh, if you want to build a barracks or you want to build a turret and the barracks will produce marines which in turn you will uh, give orders on where to go and uh, so the control scheme is pretty simple you can aim you can shoot you can build and you can give orders uh, but uh, being able to tackle your opponents will require you to do this very, very, very exactly and making very, very fast decisions. So the game map is uh, static. The camera is static in that you see the entire game field and there is no fog of war. So you can see and monitor everything that's happening on the screen all the time. But since it's very fast paced, you will need to keep your eye on your the player that you're uh, playing as, and uh, therefore it, you would kind of need to have a, s a sixth sense in um, understanding what is going on outside of your main uh, focus of vision, so to kind of figure out what the enemy is doing and how you should counteract it at the same time as you're pulling out or doing a attack on one side of the screen. Yeah, it's really like the simplest form uh, a strategy game could possibly take, really. Uh, everything is just really weird. The boiled down, all the mechanics really boiled down to the most simple form. And then on top of that, this really intense uh, action element. Uh, and this is uh, worth mentioning. This is a local, uh, a game made for local play uh, primarily. It's made for hanging out with your friends in a couch. You could play versus or you could play co-op. Um, so at its core, it's a, it's a have a nice evening with your friends game. Um, I think that would sum it up pretty good. And there are aspects of comedy there as well. I think the fact that when you when you make a, a base or a turret or installation, you can die in the process. Yes, yes, you can be orbit fragged. You're orbit fragged, which people find hilarious. It's just like, <laughs> what did you just do? What? Why did it land on me? Because it went down the way, you know, it's coming. Yeah, there's only only one way to learn that, and that's the hard way. There's only one way. It reminds me of the drop pods from Dawn of War. It's great. I like those. Um, maybe you inspired by that, but when I saw that come in, I thought, oh, it's Dawn of War. I love that game. So, yeah, I don't know where that idea comes from. I think there was a similar mechanic in... Uh, uh, Helldivers. Yeah, but not Helldivers. There was a previous game to that. Uh, wasn't it an old Warhammer game that had these pods that came down from... That's right, yeah. Dawn of War. Yeah. Warhammer 40,000 Dawn of War. Yeah, that, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's yeah. the one you're talking about. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So when I saw exactly. that, I went, cool, it's Dawn of War. So, when we discussed the mechanic, it was like, but what are we going to do if the player stands on top of the place where the building is being constructed, what then? And then we figured, well, if they die, will that be irritating? Will that be fun? Will that be part of the game? And we tried it out, and it turned out, well, that makes for a pretty fun element. Yeah, yeah. it's also fun when we do. We've done a couple, like, uh, events with this game. We've had, like, little live shows. And it's fun when you can kind of ridicule the poor person who get, gets squished like that. Oh, yeah, it's... it's, it's... 
it streams really well. Well done. I know it wasn't your intention. I know it wasn't your intention, but wow, this game streams really well. Uh, That's good. We'll talk about that later because there's an aspect I want to want to focus on. But uh, yeah, to have a, a building, a creation of a building to be used as a weapon—that's a new one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's funny also about this uh, as a weapon is uh, when we originally designed the turrets. Like normally, a turret in a game is a defense thing, right? You yes. use it to bunker down and defend yes. your base. Yeah. But we realized early on in the design of Hellfront Honeymoon that. No, it's a lot more fun to use them offensively. Yeah. You attack with them here. Yeah. They're like something you slam down. If you manage to slam down a turret close by or inside your enemy's base, oh, you're just going to eat them up from the inside, and that is so much fun. It's devastating. It's yeah, it is. So as soon as one comes out, like, oh, come on. What? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Give times. me a chance. No, you wouldn't do nope. the same to me. So, yeah, they are a little bit more powerful than troops, which will... Come to a minute, but um, so we talked about the mechanics, and there's two bases you can make at least initially. I know it changes up, but don't want to put too much spoilers. But ultimately, uh, I know you talked about features, and you trimmed it down as best you can. And again, this is something everyone take a drink, everyone. But my my my, my contention is video game creation is actually very destructive, and that you make a lot of stuff but never actually makes it to the game itself. And uh, you sort of pack it, package it up, and go, that's lovely, but not for this game, and you put it somewhere else. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have so many designs and drawings and ideas and concepts that have been in the game and then disappeared. Just didn't work. But they will work on something else, but not on this one. Yep. I want to ask about when you're ordering troops. You build bases, barracks, if you will, and uh, then troops appear from them because that's how RTSs work, Um, if you can call it that. I I don't want to actually put this in a genre or a pigeonhole. I can't. I've tried. It's impossible. It's best not to bother. Um, but why is the limit of the range on where you can order troops to go to? Um, well, <laughs> when playing with the gamepad, you um, kind of you don't have like a cursor where you can select any part of the screen where you want them to go. Uh-huh. So, giving the PC player the ability, if you play with a mouse and keyboard, to give orders on any part of the map gives a certain advantage. Yeah. Uh, it's not a super amazing advantage, but it is a gameplay advantage that we didn't want. But also, we wanted to have. We we felt that it was nicer that you, as sort of the commander of the troops, needed to kind of get into the action. You you need to sort of advance or be in proximity of where you want your troops to go. So uh, it puts a sort of a constraint uh, on how you can order your troops, and that you need to move yourself to the other part of the map to. To, to also send your troops there. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, they can only go one place as well. <laughs> just, you can't split them. It's like they, they can either go over here or over here. Just send them to where they need to go, and the turrets will chew them up. But hey, at least they're not dead. Because what we, you know, what we haven't really explained is the player is actually a person on the map. They're not this god thing looking down. They're a dude along the side of them. They're a super dude that respawns, but it's still a dude. Yeah. Uh, and uh, ultimately, as soon as you get killed and there's nothing else on the map that's still yours, that's it. Game over. You know. So if you if you die, but there's one turret still left, just a sliver of life, you will respawn and you can carry on. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Normally, when you're at that point, it's very difficult to turn it around. But I have done it. 
Or have you, yeah. Have you done it? Well, it's, yeah. Sometimes you get the amazing turnarounds. Like yeah. you have a, you somehow you manage to sneak away. You know, there's that little invulnerability when you respawn. You're yeah. invulnerable for like two seconds. Yeah. You can just squirm your way out, and then you find a free honey pot, and you slam down a new turret there, and suddenly you got a little defense, and you can start building your new base, and the match just turns around. Yeah, okay. and, and you can also build, um, if you're running through a lot of troops beside them, then you can build something just so they shoot on the building instead. Yeah, you so you manage them. to pass by. I think one of the satisfying things I had is like, I was down to one, and there's a turret, I just ran off, got a pl- uh, and, I, and they left a whole series of honeypots empty. Don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, I'll just slam a lot of stuff down there. Some yeah, and then, of, some boom. Of it, yeah, exactly, boom. <laughs> So, very, very satisfying play. But uh, there's one thing we haven't mentioned, and it's uh, it's a conceit of the game. It doesn't really go into detail about it, it's just fine. I don't have a problem. But there are, shall we say, wildlife involved uh, with this conflict between red, sort of green, white, and blue, what have you. There's, there's bugs. Lots of, you know, Starship Trooper bugs coming out of... Yep. Um, why? Yeah, good I'd, question. Yeah, Why? What, 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 how did that? How did this come I, about? Was this? Well, a, I is... think. I think like originally, originally this this setting was a lot more uh, like human versus generic space bug type. Honeybee. Yeah, some kind of like you know those are hexagons everywhere, so it kind of looked like a, a beehive. All oh, right. Okay. Kind of honey theme, and so there was a lot more focus on playing against these bugs, which was like the sort of just the default way we approach the project. You're humans and you're shooting bad bugs in space. It was a simple place to start. But after a while, we realized that the fun part was uh, shooting other humans. So um, so the, the, the bug part, the space bug part of the, uh, of the game, like kind of slimmed down and there was more focus on the actual human units, uh, human construction. So now the bugs... Uh only appear when a building is destroyed. So whenever a building is destroyed, there's an explosion and there's a ton of bugs that appear from out of the explosion and they go attack things randomly around them. Um, And when there's just one building and you have a bunch of troops stationed nearby, they will take care of the bugs because the bugs, they are melee units. They don't have any range and uh, Marines can pretty easily pick them off or turrets or the player. But when you have a bunch of exploding buildings in a cascade, you will sometimes find yourself swarmed with these bugs and they will sort of reach the point where the Marines will not be able to tackle them with their, uh, with their guns. And that will lead to the bugs reaching the buildings and destroying the buildings, releasing more bugs, which creates kind of this wave yeah, effect. Yeah, avalanche where, of bugs. Yeah. So now the bugs are there to create chaos in the game. Because it's a pretty rigid player-on-player tactical uh, element to the game where you uh, attack each other and destroy each other's buildings. But when the bugs are released, they create a sort of chaos that can be hard to predict and sometimes have very dire consequences. And sometimes both players may need to escape from the bugs and try to rebuild somewhere else because they sort of overpower all of the human uh, firepower. Yeah, we see some really weird, like, emergent behaviors from the system that we didn't really expect. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why it's so much fun to play some of the uh, the co-op or the single-player maps 
is because there's even though the rules are pretty simple uh, about how these bugs behave, still there's this weird behavior uh, that happens. Yeah, they they can take aim on something that you didn't plan them. Yeah, you weren't expecting them to do something, and then all of a sudden they're eating you from the behind, and you're yeah, you get. It's interesting. Yeah, what I found is I've kept on forgetting they would happen. <laughs> when I initially played it, it went, oh, great, I can blow this up now. If I blow this up, I can put it to, oh, no, no. Yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> Suddenly they're all over the place. Yeah, it's like, oh, damn, I've been monstered by these monsters. No. But, uh, no, it's a really lovely idea. That's what I wanted to bring it out. It's just the, the concept, the gameplay mechanic. I mean, not, it sounds like it was there all, there all the way along but it's sort of diminished, which is not what I was expecting. I was expecting something you added later on, but it's something you've... Uh, it's been... Well, it was like in an in a earlier version of the design, yeah. uh, the, uh, these bugs emerged from the honeypots in, a, in a, like a cycle. So they would, they would just pop up from a honeypot whenever they felt like it. Yeah. Uh, it would be more like a hive, like a traditional alien hive type thing. Uh, so, so that was the original behavior, but that was not nearly as interesting. And then, like a relic from that behavior was that they also popped out of the honeypots when the honeypots became available, which they do when a building explodes because they always stand on a honeypot. So this is sort of a design that just kind of emerged from adding and removing things. And we realized when we had that, we were at that point. We realized that holy shit, this is really fun. It adds a really fun element of chaos, like Matthias said. So I don't think it was that thought through originally. It was yeah, uh, earlier they could um, be uh, bugs could like build buildings, beehives, and uh, create more bees and uh, populate the area and fight for territory. Yeah, that it was, was like, really cool, but yeah. it didn't really fit into the overall design. Throwing away stuff is better than keeping uh, half good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So how have you found? the balance between arcade reactions and tactical play because for me uh, the Hellfront honeymoon is very much that those two things merged into one how do you think I'm balancing those two I think it's that is really very much um, that the balance comes very much from us approaching the game wanting the game to be different things um I noticed early on that I wanted the game, me personally, I wanted the game to be top-down shooter oriented with a lot of action and not as much focus on the strategy element because I realized that I was better than my colleagues at the at the top-down shooter part, which is probably because I played more console games than they did uh, on a modern controller. Uh, but obviously when they kicked my ass, they insisted that the strategic element would be more important because they knew that I wasn't playing strategically. I was just playing, you know... I was just shooting them. Uh, so they uh, they managed to convince me or whatever that that we would add a, a stronger importance on the strategic part of the game. And so that kind of balanced back and forth until everyone, uh, all three of us uh, were I happy. I think we were like uh, playtesting a lot with friends and they gave us feedback and then we listened to the feedback. And uh, Yeah, we've done a lot of playtesting here. But mostly T.O. is... A very irritating opponent. <laughs> he, he just refuses to die. You have the entire map. He still runs around and shoots you in the back, and you just can't take 
take him down, even though he has no chance of winning. And then we're like, screw this. It shouldn't be possible to play like Tio. It's no fun. I have won the map. Just stop. And then we added upgrade points. Yeah. To make the yeah, running right. around harder. Yeah. 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 I know we haven't delved into it too much because I want to you know, let some surprises for the, for the player. Because okay. it does grow. It does mushroom up. There's <laughs> a very sort of shallow... Uh, learning curve on how to play the game, and that's what I wanted to draw out about this discussion. Yeah, yeah it worked, but it's um, what really becomes very spiky is the uh, realizing that you can understand how to play the game, but uh, to master it is that's another that's another story. Yeah, yep. and it requires and that requires a lot of dedication, and a lot of time, and a lot of repeat play, and you realize that oh. That's why I should do that then, not back then. Because yep. it's not fun putting a turret there, but actually probably not a good idea. You know. So, um, okay. So, last question then. I know, all good things must come to an end. Oh, that's oh. sad. I know. <laughs> is, uh, but this one is a, a question I ask often of uh, developers because... There's a thing that I've discovered, and it's probably known about for decades, but it's only I've really come to appreciate as games become more uh, visually beautiful, if you want a better phrase, or indeed engaging or lots of things happening on the screen. That's one of the things that have happened in recent years, that all of a sudden the restrictions of having small amount of sprites flying around has gone, and now you can just, you can just throw all the things at the machine and it still won't slow down. Uh, the point is, how do you believe do you communicate to the player the optimum approach and how they uh, for each match in a, in a, in a map? Uh, what's the? How do you believe you communicate to the player that maybe where we place these honeypots, you should think about what you should put there and where you should put it. Um, well, I think. Communicate that. Well, I think like what you learn pretty fast when you've been playing the game like you if you've been playing uh, co-op mi or missions whatever uh, you learn pretty fast that uh, if you're feeling safe where you are on the map generally a good idea to build a barracks because yeah. the barracks is like a long-term investment and if you're in an area with a lot of heat there's a lot going on then you want to put up a turret probably it's not always the best idea but as a general rule if there's a lot going on put up a turret if it's a safe area put up a barracks and I guess when you played a couple matches and you come to a new map, you can probably sometimes like understand what we were thinking when we designed the map, or I should say Henry, because he's the one who made most of the maps. Because <laughs> um, as a general rule, you can find that there's like often a home honeypot where you where you will start out, uh, and that's probably a good place to build a barracks. So I think like from experience, people will sort of be able to guess. And then, as you said, there's a lot of trial and error yeah. in, the, uh, in the mission maps. You'll realize that, oh, this might be a good strategy, and then, oh, nope, I get screwed over, and then you'll... Uh, it depends so much on how the other people are playing. Oh, yeah, very much so. Uh, yeah, uh, I found there's one particular map I struggled with in the early part of the game. It was just like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I... And I turned out I was putting barracks in Well, I shouldn't have been. You know, yeah. weren't giving them a chance to spawn anything because they're being obliterated by the bugs or marines or turrets or something. Yeah. It's just, you know, strategic positioning. But um, And also there's the, there's the destructive scenery as well, which helps. Yeah, 
Yeah, that really makes a difference. I haven't gone into that. And, um, and, and the single player is more like puzzle. So, so that's more designed for putting the right stuff in the right order and things like that. So uh, multiplayer is a different thing. Yeah, multiplayer is very different because your enemy is always moving. Uh, your the, the opponent base is always moving when you're playing multiplayer. Yeah. And your own base is always moving. So what's the front and what is the rear is always changing. So you always have to adapt to that. Well, what I found is, um, what I was hinting at earlier, is the fact that when you're playing a game, you can only see the central third of the screen. And everything else is in your peripheral vision. So yeah. in the case of console games, well, it's the same with PC games now because I actually use a, a link box for playing on my big television in my living room, a lot of PC games, because it's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the problem with that is, I say problem, but it's a nice problem to have, but you only see the middle sort of third. So, I mean, how, what do you think you do to make sure that people's attention are drawn to bits of the map that may not be focused on when they should be? Well, the uh, the honeypots, as you probably noticed, are extremely shiny. They're mm. bright and shiny. They have this strong orange color. And that's so that, I mean, if you're an experienced player, you'll be subconsciously looking for them. Uh, you won't, your eyes won't have to move to them to know that they are up there and that they are available. Mm. And in this game, if you don't take the honeypot, your opponent will and they will win. So it's all about knowing where those free honeypots are. Uh, so that's why they're so shiny. <laughs> so you just can't. That's another of the of the design decisions that came on is that we removed any uh, any game economy. Like there is no cost to build a structure. There is only map control. You just need to control the area of uh, where the honeypot is. You just need to run there, put up a structure, make sure no one uh, shoots it down. So uh, to simplify things, you just need to keep an eye out for where there is an opening. Where are the honeypots? Where can I go? And you sort of need to do that in a microsecond because you can't stop looking at where the player is at the same time because you need to keep alive and you need to keep shooting things. That's right. And if, if you have one honeypot ahead of you, that'll change uh, your options. If you have two honeypots ahead of you, then that will change what you want to do with the first honeypot. If you have two honeypots between you and your enemy, build a barracks and then a turret. If there's only one, probably build a turret. It's, uh, it, yeah, it's like that one binary choice that the whole thing is about. Yeah, it's, I think, and you say that uh, turrets or buildings that don't cost anything. They do. It's time. Yeah. They do cost time. And they do cost your they cost your honeypot. I mean, yeah. They do. Yeah. Yeah, and if you um, make an orbit frag on yourself when you are stopping <laughs> the game, then then you are screwed. Yeah, that will cost you another five seconds, and that is very expensive. Oh yeah, yeah. Then you're, you're absolutely. Screwed. I, I love the fact that talking about time as a resource because as the older I get, I realize that yeah, that's way more important than, than anything than else. Anything else, it's actually yeah. it's actually time, and mm. it's fleeting. They're not lying. Turns out my parents are right. Oh, man. <laughs> You've been in denial. Yeah, I know. In that terribly dark note, uh, let us end it there. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Hellfront Honeymoon by Sky Goblin is out on the 30th of November. So um, a couple of weeks from now, uh, from what we're recording. Uh, actually, when this show goes out, it'll probably be a week from now. Uh, and it's out on Windows PC. Anything else? Uh, yeah, it's on PlayStation and Xbox One. Excellent. Good stuff. 
and yeah. uh, it's benefiting from the fact that both those are kind of Windows platforms, but not Windows, Intel platforms, but, but not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, again, thank you all for, for coming on the show. It's been fantastic chatting to you. And you've been very, very frank and open about your experience of making uh, Hellfront Honeymoon. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you so much. And uh, more than welcome to come back to chat about whatever new enterprise you have following. Awesome. Uh, we look forward to it. Yeah, cool. 